Hi, this is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to the show. We're going to get back into our study of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the greatest letter, the most important letter that's ever been written on the face of the earth. And we're going to get back into chapter 1. What, what does he say here in verse 7? And again, this is kind of his introduction to the letter. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of where we left off. Not forgetting that sainthood is the goal. All of us are called to be canonizable saints, to have our own stained glass window in a church somewhere. And yeah, that's the goal. If we if we aim for less than that, what happens if we miss? If we're just trying to get into purgatory by the skin of our teeth, that's not a good target. Uh, it's just too risky. All of us are called to be great saints by virtue of our baptism and to help others to become saints as well. Holiness and apostolate is what it's all about. And so Paul is constantly talking about this in his letters. And then he also mentions grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really important because grace is not just God's unmerited favor that we don't deserve. And he, he's going to talk about this a lot in his letter to the Romans. But grace is really God's life given to us. You know, and we can't get this without his gift. And that's what gives us peace with God. The fact that he reconciles us with him. No, no one deserves. The church teaches that no one deserves this initial gift of forgiveness and justification that God offers to us through the gospel. Um, and we do have to partner with him, though, too. And so we've got to keep that in mind as we go forward here. Let's go to the next section. This is uh, the next major section in St. Paul's letter to the Romans with verse 8, starting with uh, chapter 1, verse 8, and going through to verse 15. Let's read it together. And I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, 2nd Catholic Edition. St. Paul writes, First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is heralded throughout the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in proclaiming the gospel of his Son, that I remember you constantly, always asking in my prayers that somehow, by God's will, I may at last find my way clear to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may share with you some spiritual gift, so that you may be strengthened, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers that I often planned to come to you, though I was prevented until now, that I might harvest some fruit among you too, as among the rest of the Gentiles. To Greeks and non-Greeks alike, to the wise and the ignorant, I am under obligation. That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. Well, the ubiquitous queen of pop, Taylor Swift, uh, her last major stadium tour before the one she's on now was called the Reputation Tour, kind of promoting that album. And she had a hit song that said that she had some big enemies. She had a reputation that preceded her. And, and that's exactly what's going on with St. Paul. He's got a reputation. So when he, and he has some big enemies as well, just like Taylor Swift. So he had to introduce himself to the Romans and explain a few things about how he really did want to go and visit them. And also, he knows that he's got uh, there's sort of this picture that was painted of Paul that, that kind of want, people wanted to see him as some kind of a radical 
who was teaching things that were incredibly dangerous. And you can, you can read about this in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 28, and even later on in Romans, in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. But he really wanted to set the record straight. And he wanted to visit the Roman church in person. And a lot of people had heard bad things about him. Who he is, why does he want to go there, why does he want to preach the gospel? So the first thing that he says is he wants to, to tell them how much he's been praying for them, how concerned he is for them. He wants to create this family bond with them in, in the faith. And he, and he keeps telling them, I've often desired to go. I wished I could come there before, but I've been prevented. I've been, some of it was his own fault, as we'll see, but he really wants to get to Rome and preach and use his gifts to serve the church there. So he wants all of us to serve as well. God wants all of us to serve and use our gifts in the church. And later on, as you'll see in chapter 12 of Romans, Paul goes into this great discourse on spiritual gifts that God has given each one of us in the church. But he's buttering them up a little bit. He's saying, look, the whole world has heard about your faith. And I want to minister to you, and I want you guys in Rome to minister to me. That's one of the things he says. So in verse 8, we see this. Paul writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the entire world. Now, it's interesting that he says, I thank my God. It, it, we, we have to, too, understand that faith has to be personal like that, just as it was for Paul. We don't just believe in a God. We believe in our God, your God, my God, same God but it has to be personal. And sometimes uh, as Catholics, you might have been asked a question from maybe a, a Protestant friend, an evangelical friend, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And, and, and we don't tend to talk like that in the Catholic Church, so we don't really understand really what that means. We think, yeah, I guess so. But it really does have to be personal. And let me tell you, it doesn't get any more personal than receiving Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. That's as close personally as you can get without dying. But Paul wants this relationship for the Romans and also for you and for me. So it's this personal relationship through Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And Stephen Cole uh, wrote a great little piece about this. I'm going to share a little bit about what he wrote uh, here in the section of Romans. He's not, he's not a Catholic, but he had some interesting insights. It's through Jesus Christ that we have access to God. This is, he's made it all possible for us. And Paul's thankful for that. And he's also thankful that the faith of the Roman church is being proclaimed throughout the world. And this is why Paul is really, really excited to get to Rome. He's also excited for another reason, which we'll get into later, because Rome really had a, a big plan, a big part in God's plan for the world. And this is prophesied even in the Old Testament, even in the book of the prophet Daniel, which we'll get into. But Rome had a strategic place, of course, in the world. The Roman roads made it easier to spread the gospel. And because the church caught on in Rome, it was able to, to get to a lot of other places. And it, Paul really didn't have much to do with that because he, he wasn't even a Christian at that point when the faith first got to Rome, but he, he's really longed to see this church. Another thing that we have to understand about, about 
why Paul wanted to go to Rome so badly is because it is the not only the the major city in the empire, but the Roman church has pride of place over all the other churches of Christendom. One of the things that St. Ignatius of Antioch uh, did, uh, who died also in Rome along with Peter and Paul during great persecutions against the church, a little bit later than them, of course, in the early 2nd century, 107 AD, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, he wrote seven letters on the way to his martyrdom in the Roman Colosseum. In his letter to the Romans, he said the church in Rome holds a place of preeminence. They are the president among all the other churches. And St. Irenaeus, later on, 2nd century, in his Against Heresies, Against False Teachings, another really important passage in early Christianity, he says this, St. Irenaeus says, Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, whether by an evil self-pleasing, by vain glory, or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. We do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, as also by pointing out the faith preached to men which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. That is the faithful everywhere, inasmuch as the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously by those faithful who exist everywhere. So in this passage, St. Irenaeus says that every single church in the world has to agree with the church at Rome. Why? Because of its preeminent authority. So this is papal primacy, if you will. The church at Rome does have authority over all the other churches in Christendom. And there's a lot of reasons for this. But essentially there were, I guess you could say, proto-Protestants in the first centuries who were, as Irenaeus says, assembling in unauthorized gatherings. Uh, they have departed from the church that Jesus founded, the Catholic Church. And St. Ignatius calls it the Catholic Church in one of his letters. So this is, this is crucial that Paul gets to Rome. And you might say, if he's never been there before, why, is, why does Irenaeus say that he founded the church? Well, the church was there before Peter and Paul got there. But the fact that they shed their blood there, became martyrs there, as we've spoken of earlier, um, really kind of cements this founding of the church by God. Uh, these two most glorious apostles, as Irenaeus says. So he really, really wants to go there. And he's been praying for them that it be God's will that he get there. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. This is The Letter to the Romans by St. Paul. Okay, so let's see what uh, St. Paul says next after this. In verses 9 and 10, uh, St. Paul says, my, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So let's take this apart a little bit. Paul says, I serve God in my spirit. And, and that word uh, translated in English as serve, this has to do with worship. It's actually 
uh, a line that really has to do with the liturgy. Uh, it's the Greek word latrio, and it means divine worship. It's the same word that we see Jesus use when he's disputing with the devil, uh, the great temptation in the wilderness that Satan uh, tries to, to get Jesus with. It doesn't work, of course. Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So it's that same word, to serve, to worship. And that's exactly what Paul has tried to do uh, through his prayer, through preaching the gospel, even celebrating the Mass, if you will. This is, again, as Scott Hahn says, he's like a priest, and he really is a priest, offering and he's offering the people, he's praying for the people to God. He's lifting them up before God. And later on in Romans chapter 15, he explicitly says this in Romans 15, verses 15 and 16. He says this, I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he even says, I'm in the priestly service of the gospel of God. I believe Paul did view himself as a priest. So that's that's good for us to know as well as we go along here. And he says also, as he said earlier in the letter, I, I do it for his name's sake, for Jesus' sake. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes in the Catholic life, what is our motivation for doing what we're doing? Are we looking for affirmation from human beings? Or from God. And Jesus in the Gospel of John chided others who were looking merely for human affirmation. But God sees all, He sees our motivations, why we do what we do. He knows our hearts inside and out. And so, this idea of doing things for God and doing things in God's way is also really important. Lately, uh, in the church, there have been a lot of attempts to try to use principles from the business world. Uh, to try to help grow the church. And and this is true of Catholics and, and other Christians as well have gotten into this. I remember once meeting a man when I was outside of the Catholic church and I was in the Protestant world. I came back into the Catholic church, obviously. But this guy was trying to be the pastor of a mega church. And he was a, a very, very sincere believer. And he'd read, read, uh, read all these books about church growth and all these techniques you could use to grow your church into a mega church, which meant over a thousand people. Well, it didn't work. And he was just stuck on a couple dozen for, for years and years. And he finally just quit. And he went through this dark spiritual time because he just kind of lost his faith. And so sometimes we can try to use worldly methods that, that don't accomplish real spiritual goals. Um, Paul says, look, you, you've got to go to the basics here. It's God who grows the church. And we have to pray. We have to pray for others and we have to pray for ourselves as well. Noting that sometimes things aren't going to work out in a way that, that the world will say, hey, why don't we all go to the Catholic Church? That's, that's, it'd be wonderful if that was the case. But very often we know that people aren't drawn to the church. But many are. Many are. And, and in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The gospel 
He says, is the power of God. We're going to see this in just a minute in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the power comes from the gospel, not from anything that we do or our cleverness. God doesn't need our cleverness. He can use our gifts for sure, but he, he doesn't need us to get the job done. He certainly part, uh, invites us to participate in it. And, and some of the techniques that are out there that people want to use, they want to say, well, you know, if you, if you come to God, you, you can have a greater career. You can become more successful in life. Uh, you, your family life can become greater. You can become better at business and in relationships. Well, all of these things could potentially be true. But often what converts people is nothing more. And the good news of the gospel set against the, the bad news of sin. And, and people need to understand that they are sinners before they can seek the cure. And Paul's going to lay out the utter sinfulness of the world without God in these next couple of chapters. But very often, we're afraid to just lay out the gospel, the truth of the gospel message. Well, Paul's going to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Very often, we can be. We try to dress it up in fancy clothing because we don't want to preach the real truth of the Catholic Church. So it's just something something to think about here. So Paul Paul's probably dealing with, again, a bad reputation, some misinformation that people have been spreading about him. Some of the enemies of St. Paul might have told the members of the Roman Church, Paul doesn't care about you. He's never even been to Rome. He doesn't know you guys. He doesn't really care about you. So Paul wants them to realize that I am praying for you, and I'm sincere about that. I pray for you all the time. Now, he, he's going to say, I, I want to get to you, but first I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got a gift, a financial gift for the saints there, this collection I've been taking up. And his enemies might have even said about that, see, he doesn't really want to see you guys. He, he wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go somewhere else. You're the last on his list. Paul says, no, you guys are in my prayers, and I've been praying for a long time that I could get there. I could get there. But he, he's been frustrated. He's been delayed for various reasons. And some of it is Paul's own fault. Um, he mentions this in verse 13. He's been frustrated not being able to get to Rome sooner. And so sometimes this can happen to us too. Sometimes we have something that we're really praying for, something that we really want. We think it's important for God and even for the spread of the faith. That certain things happen. And when, when it doesn't happen on our schedule, if we don't get maybe instant gratification here, we think, well, maybe there's something wrong with my prayer, or, or may, maybe I did it wrong, or maybe God's not really answering me. But here's something we need to learn, and Paul, Paul learned this lesson really well. Sometimes God answers our prayers through ways that we don't understand. Sometimes he even answers our prayer with a delay. And his answer is not yet. And we, we, we don't know what God's designs are and God's plans. Paul prayed that he could get to Rome, but he didn't get there right away. First, he gets arrested in Jerusalem for various reasons. Then he gets to, he gets to go to prison for two years in Caesarea. And so he, he might have been thinking, I'll never get to Rome, but he eventually does. As one scholar said, you know, it's kind of good that he didn't get to Rome right away, because if he, if he had gotten to Rome right away, we wouldn't have this letter to the Romans, which is so rich and filled with so much truth. So we're going to get into this much more in the next episode 
of St. Paul's letter to the Romans right here on the Faith Explained. But right now, we're going to dip into the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag segment. Let's go for it. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A segment, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. I'll try to answer it on the show. You can send it to me at faith at relevantradio.com. That's the email address, faith at relevantradio.com. And you can also try to find me on the Twitter app, also known as X. And my handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And this question is actually from me, and I'm going to answer it because I think you guys might be curious about this. Uh, We've been looking at St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And one of the things that Paul says in his letter is how much he's longing to get to the church at Rome. He knows the strategic importance of Rome for advancing the gospel just from a human level. It's the capital of the empire, the most important city in the world. But, 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 he also knows that Rome figures heavily in biblical prophecy. And he's so excited about this because he sees God's plan, God's family plan for the world is oikonomia, the economy of salvation coming true before his eyes. In the book of Daniel, which St. Paul knew very, very well, the prophet Daniel, Paul's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's a trained rabbi. He knows about the great dreams that Daniel had that he interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, and also another dream that he interpreted that figures with the coming kingdom of God. So this has always been super fascinating to me. We, we did a study on uh, Daniel and the Faith Explained. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, who's one of the Jewish exiles in Babylon, he's called upon to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And, And this is how he does it. Daniel says, as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So then he's about to interpret the king's dream here. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. 
And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of the, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Okay, there's so much more we could say here. So Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this great golden statue. It's got a head of gold, a chest, and arms of silver. As you go down the body, it gets kind of stronger and yet weaker at the same time. A head of gold, a chest of arms and silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet of clay and iron mixed. Now it's interesting because later on in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream himself about four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a final terrifying and frightening beast. It's the same thing. The, the beasts and the statue really represent the same thing. Four kingdoms that would arise on the earth. And at the end of this fourth kingdom, there would arise the kingdom of God. So the head of gold in chapter 2, which is the same as the lion, in chapter 7, you can read about that on your own, is the Babylonian kingdom. King Nebuchadnezzar, and of course he had taken the Jews into exile. And then the chest and arms of silver are the, Medio, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, featuring King Cyrus, who defeated the Babylonians and let the Jews return to the Promised Land. The next, uh, the belly and the thighs of bronze, and which also corresponds with the leopard, in chapter 7 is the kingdom of Greece. Alexander the Great, the incredible speed with which he conquered the known world, never lost a battle. His soldiers were just too tired to follow him into India, and eventually he died of fever in Babylon himself. And then this fourth and final beast represented by the legs of iron on the statue, the terrifying and frightening beast uh, in chapter 7 is Rome. And this iron, that you know, it's just so strong, and it just destroys everything in its wake, and then feet of clay and iron mixed, eventually prophesying the king will be broken up. And this is where this great rock, not made by human hands, is cut out and just destroys the statue, uh, replaces these other kingdoms, and it will fill the whole earth, and there'll be eventually a new heaven and a new earth. This is the kingdom of God. And this is why St. Paul is so excited about Rome and the church taking root at Rome because this means that the fourth beast and the feet of the statue are coming to an end. The kingdom of God is now here. 
If you've got a question about the faith, send it to me. The email is faith at relevantradio.com. Find me on Twitter at Kale Clark. Thanks for joining me on The Faith Explained. We'll catch you in the next one. Peace.